Hey, this is Joel Allen, the host of Biblical Conversations, honest conversation about difficult aspects of the Bible. Biblical Conversations is an invitation to a new way of thinking about Scripture. Typically, we come to Scripture looking for answers or to find wisdom, the Word of the Lord, or to find insight into the human condition. And while those are great questions to ask of Scripture, this podcast is about a new way of thinking about the Bible, a new way of looking at Scripture as an extended series of conversations, biblical conversations, conversations that are often in conflict and just as often finding conflict resolution. The Bible, like Jesus himself, is fully human and fully divine. And here we're going to explore the human side of this equation as a portal to deeper appreciation and deeper insight into the Bible as the very Word of God. The Bible was written by many different people with different ideas and different agendas. The authors of Scripture were people like you and me about the task of understanding this Yahweh who led them up out of Egypt and into the land of promise and who comes to us in the person of Jesus, our Christ. The Bible, as a fully human document, conveys ideas about God that are in conflict with other ideas about God in the Bible. The Bible is a human story about how these ancient people of faith with conflicting notions and competing understandings learned how to resolve conflicts and develop communities built on shalom. And this is why this is so important. We still live in community and we still have conflict, conflict that's getting worse by the day. We still seek shalom. We need to find shalom, God's peace. There's an art to learning to live within the bonds of peace and by divine grace in blessed community. And I believe that the most exalted, at least for me, the most transformative way we can experience the scriptures as, as the very words of God is to grapple with them in all their humanity. I've come to love the Bible even more passionately as God's word because it comes to us in the dust of history, the grind of politics, and the gore of warfare. It conveys a history generated by people of faith on a complex and meandering journey of redemption and grace. The words of these particular people have become for us the very word of God, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift, a gift that points the way toward reclaiming blessed communities of shalom today and to God's eternal kingdom. Are you up for a new way of engaging in the holy scriptures of our faith? Let's have a biblical conversation. Hello, my name is Joel Allen, and I'm the host of Biblical Conversations. Biblical Conversations is a podcast that's devoted to an honest conversation about the difficult aspects of the Bible with a goal towards seeking understanding that leads to enhanced faith and deepened discipleship. In this particular podcast, we will be discussing the question of godliness and the good life. The basic question is, Does God bless and prosper those who keep God's laws? Or is there a mystery to prosperity where some people who are evil prosper and some people who are good prosper and that prosperity is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing and and promise? So does God uh, prosper and bless people who keep God's laws? there There are places where the Bible seems to say yes and places where the Bible seems to say no. 
I need to give specific credit to one of my theological seminary professors. To be honest, I never had uh, Dr. Thompson, his name is David Thompson, and I never actually had him as a professor in a class. I only read an article and then heard him discuss a topic, this topic, uh, on, on uh, one occasion. So I read the article and then heard him discuss it later, and it had a huge impact on me. When I heard this art and, and heard his presentation on this topic, it just rocked my world. I not only began to see that there are competing understandings of the relationship between godliness and the good life in the Bible, but more than that, this whole way of understanding the Bible as having competing voices, that the Bible is a fully human text. And as a fully human text, it has competing voices. You don't get two people into a room without two different opinions on most topics. And the Bible is the same way. The Bible is a book of competing opinions. And that does not necessarily mean to, to diminish the Bible as the Word of God. And that's what I got from Dr. Thompson. He's a firm believer in the Bible as sacred scripture and as the Word of God. And so in his presentation on this, he wasn't intending to tear people's faith down or to uh, to uh, minimize the Bible's authority and inspiration. He was only wanting to show, and what I'm doing the same, I'm only wanting to show that the Bible is a fully human text, and as fully human, there are competing opinions within its pages, and that that need not mean for us that it's not also God's holy word. So God's holy word could come to us almost as a symphony with all kinds of a symphony could, if you listen to different uh, instruments and what they're playing, could it could sound cacophonous, but when you put all of it together, it's symphonic. And there may be some, or that may be an analogy. The Bible is fully human and fully divine, just the way Christ is fully human and fully divine. And so as a fully human, fully divine text, we need to appreciate the Bible's humanity. And so that's what this, uh, this episode will do. We'll explore this concept and we'll look at passages which clearly say that God blesses those and prospers those who keep God's laws. And then we'll look at other places that are asking questions and, and not so sure about it. And then other places in the, uh, in the Hebrew scriptures and also in the New Testament where God, the Bible seems to clearly say that God, uh, that there's more of a mystery and that you cannot simply look at uh, whether or not God, a person is righteous and know whether or not they will be prospering in this physical world. It's much more complicated than that. And there are uh, the whole variety of opinions. And so we're going to actually kind of fly through them pretty quickly because it's impossible to, uh, to examine all of them in detail. But I want to give you a real overview, especially the book of Job is a tough one. But, but the book of Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk is an important text. We don't talk about Habakkuk yet. It's a very interesting and poignant little book. And so... So we'll be uh, briefly overviewing the pros and the cons and the I'm not so sure passages in the Bible. And I think this will be a fascinating podcast. It, it, this topic, as I said, opened up a whole new venue of understanding scripture as very human. And to be honest, I think I said this earlier when I recorded the episode called The Deal. It's this kind of thing that makes the Bible so interesting to me. If the Bible was completely perfect with all the, the uh, themes in perfect alignment, it would just be boring. 
But the Bible isn't boring. It's a very human book with all kinds of differing opinions. And that makes it exciting to read. You get this tension of discussion and differing opinions that, uh, that make the Bible so much more exciting and so much more interesting. And that's why I can say after a whole year, a lifetime of studying the Bible, I'm still interested in it. I still get up every morning eager to read what the scriptures are saying. And the Bible still is the word of God to me. And yet it's a very human and uh, very earthly and earth, very earthly text. And so it's that excitement that I want to share with you. So uh, the godliness and the good life, that's what's coming up. You could really take a look at the whole of Scripture through the lens of God's promised blessing. Blessing and curse is like a theme that goes right throughout the whole Bible. And what I want to do in this portion is just take a thumbnail view of the notion of divine blessing, especially in the Pentateuch. And this will not be extensive. We'll just kind of talk through a few key passages and um, but particularly, remember what we said earlier that the uh, God promises blessing very clearly in the Pentateuch for those that keep God's laws. But even before the laws were given on Mount Sinai, blessing is a key part of the story because you'll remember right in chapter one, after God created Adam and Eve, it said God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and master it. So God blessed them. In this case, it's saying that God uh, wanted them to uh, to be fruitful, to multiply, to have a lot. So having a lot of children is a sign of God's blessing and to uh, care for God's uh, good world in a land that produces an abundance of harvest. And so that idea of having a lot of children and having a lot of harvest and food to eat because and the idea of living securely in a land that goes right to the core of blessing. But blessing isn't just those things. The idea of being blessed by God is also the notion of living in right relationship with God. So the Bible starts right out with this promised blessing. But once they broke uh, with God in chapter 3 and committed the sin of eating the, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then, um, then God's uh, curse is pronounced on on both the man, the woman, and the serpent. The, the notion of redemption from that curse starts to turn a new corner in Genesis chapter 12, which is where God calls Abraham or, or Abram at this point. His name is Abram earlier on, and then God changes his name to Abraham. And uh, right from the start, God, when God calls Abram, the blessing is a part of the story. When God says, uh, you know, calls him, he's living in Haran, and God calls him to move down to Canaan. And he says, leave your land and your father's household for the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name respected and you will become a blessing. I'll bless those that bless you and those who curse you, I will curse. And so this is probably tied in to the previous curse. In other words, this here's the beginning of the blessing that overwhelms and heals and redeems the curse mentioned in Genesis 3, the curse of sin. But this begins the whole story of the patriarchs and the God's redemptive purpose for Israel. It's not presented in the Bible as just something haphazard. It's something that is God's ultimate plan to redeem the world and to, to purchase the world back and to bring God's full redemptive healing to the world 
through these people who will convey God's blessing that will undo the curse of the curse. So, uh, so the right from the start, Abraham's the Abraham story is has blessing connected to it, and then uh, and then in chapter twenty-two, where that covenant gets reaffirmed by God after the whole uh, sacrifice of Isaac episode, it says that. So this is Genesis chapter twenty-two. Verse 15, the Lord's messenger called out to Abram from the heaven and said, uh, and said, I give my word, the Lord, that because you did, did this and did not hold back your son, your only son, I will bless you richly and I will give you countless descendants, as many as the stars in the sky and as the grains of the sand on the seashore. They, referring to Abram's descendants, will conquer their enemies' cities. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because of your descendants, because you obeyed me. So here, what does blessing consist of? It consists of Abram because Abram or here Abraham now, because Abraham has uh, been willing to go through with this terrible uh, calling upon him to sacrifice his child Isaac. Uh, and of course, Isaac didn't, did not die and was redeemed. But uh, Abraham, was, Abraham was, uh, was willing to go to that extent in following this test. It's so interesting that that uh, I mean, if God asked me to sacrifice one of my children, I'd say, like, get thee behind me, Satan. God could never do that. And it's also interesting that in Jer- the book of Jeremiah, another place that talks about child sacrifice, which was common in the ancient world, uh, God says to Jeremiah, these people that are sacrificing their ch- children to the god Molech, they're doing something so evil, I could never even imagine it. It's never even crossed my mind that I could want someone's child to be sacrificed to me. And what's so interesting about that is that uh, Abraham seemed to think that God wanted him to sacrifice his child. It seemed to cross God's mind in Genesis chapter 22, and yet in uh, Jeremiah, it doesn't seem to. So that'd be another area of scripture where there's there's tension, there's these internal tensions within scripture. And, uh, but in this case, we see that the blessing was promised to Abraham and that, uh, and that that blessing involved conquering their enemies and having a lot of descendants. So having a lot of descendants who would be wealthy and would be um, numerous and would be blessed and would conquer their enemies. The uh, next passage, well, the, after this, we get into the book of Exodus where we receive the, or we uh, encounter the law of God in Genesis chapter 20. And the law doesn't make a lot of reference to blessing, but it does make one reference to blessing right in the middle where it talks about honor your father and your mother so that your life will be long in the fertile land that the Lord your God is giving to you. So if you honor your father and your mother, here God is promising blessing. So again, blessing here, right at the beginning where the law is. So God has promised blessing before the law is given with Abraham where Abraham follows God and he's promised this blessing. And Abraham is willing to sacrifice Isaac and he's promised blessing for his descendants. And now here in um, Exodus chapter 20, uh, uh, verse 12, <laughs> there's a blessing p- promised for, um, for those who honor their, their mother and their father. Leviticus chapter 26, toward the end of this whole uh, section of... Uh, narrative on the Sinai Peninsula story where the children of Israel are being given the law of God. 
there's a, a powerful passage that deals with blessing and curse. And, um, and this is one of the places where in a very, very powerful way, the notion of blessing and curse is being tied together. It, it's worth pointing out that it's been many times noted by scholars that the, the, in many different ways, the narrative of the first five books of the uh, Hebrew scriptures the, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that in many different ways, these the covenant that God establishes with the children of Israel looks like covenants that are called suzerainty treaties. So there were these treaties in the ancient world where a, a powerful person would set up a treaty with, a, with another uh, person or a group of people or an emperor. So very, they're typically where there is a variance in power, where, say, the emperor of Assyria would set up a, a treaty with the king of Tyre or something like that. I'm just making that up. And so and these are called uh, suzerainty treaties, and they're treaties where where there were blessings and curses typically written into these treaties. So if you keep the treaty, I will bless you and I will... You know, I, I promise to make sure things go well for you. But if you break this treaty, I, I'm going to make you, there will be hell to pay. And so th these kinds of treaties are, um, the, the, the what's happening in the Bible is reflecting these kinds of treaties that are kind of a common part of the ancient world. And so in, in Leviticus chapter 26, this whole notion of blessing and curse comes to a pinnacle. There are actually two places in the pinnacle, Leviticus 26 and then Deuteronomy 28. They're actually very similar in the sense that they both, the first half, promise blessing if you keep the law, and the second half promise curses if you don't keep the law. And so we have two key places in, in the, um, the Pentateuch that really make the case. And I'm only going to, just for the sake of time, I'm only going to really talk about uh, the Leviticus 26 version. And it's, so, um, and so here it is. So it says in verse 3, If you live according to my rules and keep my commandments and do them, I will give you rain at the proper time. Your land will produce its yield, and the trees of the field will produce their fruit. Your threshing season will last until the grape harvest, and the grape harvest will last until planting time. You will eat your fill of food and live securely in your land. I will grant peace in the land so that you can lie down without anyone frightening you. I will remove danger animals from the land so no no sword will pass through it no and no sword will pass through it it's meaning no conquering army you will chase your enemies and they will fall before you in battle five of you will chase away a hundred and a hundred of you will chase away ten thousand and your enemies will fall before you in battle i will turn my face to you and i will make you fruitful and numerous and i will keep my covenant with you you will be uh, you will still be eating the previous year's harvest when the time will come to clear it and make room for the new i will place my dwelling among you and i will not despise you i will walk around among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and who brought you up from being Egypt's slaves. I broke your bonds and I made you stand up straight. 
And so all of that is promised if you do not make idols. That's the way this all starts. And don't set up divine images or sacred pillars. It really emphasizes here not being an idolatrous person. Uh, so it emphasizes not making idols, keeping the Sabbath. Actually, is also mentioned, you will keep my Sabbaths and respect my sanctuary. And then third, you will, and then just kind of a general, if you live according to my rules and keep my commands and do them, and then this list of blessings, and it goes on and on and on with a list of blessings, clearly tying together in a very powerful, powerful way, the uh, blessing of God. And then, then, comes the opposite. But if you do not obey me and do not keep all my commands, if you reject my rules and despise my regulations, not doing all my commands and breaking my covenant, then then I will do the following things to you. And then it goes on and on and on. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll read the first one. I will bring horrific things, wasting diseases and fevers will make your eyes fail and drain your life away. Oh my goodness. So this goes on and on and uh, with uh, detailed descriptions of what will happen if they break God's law and fail to keep this covenanted relationship based on law that they have. The only thing that's kind of, that's hopeful and encouraging about this passage comes at the very end in verse 44. But despite all that, it says when they're in the enemy territory, so it goes on and on talking about how if you break God's laws, you're going to go into exile in enemy territory. But when you're there in enemy territory, I will not reject them or despise them. These are their descendants who are now living in a foreign land. I will not reject them or despise them to the point of totally destroying them, breaking my covenant with them by doing so, because I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with the first generation, the ones I brought up out of Egypt's land in the sight of all the nations in order to be their God. I am the Lord. So there is this promise at the very end of the day that the covenant won't be completely destroyed even by your sin, but you're going to lose all the blessing that's connected to it. So we have these numerous places that very, very clearly and unambiguously tie together being blessed of God and being faithful to God. There's a direct connection in all these verses between godliness or faithfulness to God or keeping God's laws. There's a direct connection between that and having a good life. These passages promise nothing less than Eden on earth wonderful blessings. Your enemies will run from you in battle. You'll be healthy. You'll be happy. Your your children will be happy. You'll, you'll have everything your heart could imagine if you keep God's laws. And Deuteronomy chapter 28 is much the same as this one. It couldn't be any clearer. They're saying there is a direct connection between being faithful to God's covenant and keeping God's covenant laws and having a good life. The first place we encounter genuine doubt concerning the efficaciousness of God's promise of blessing is in the book of Psalms, particularly Psalms of Lament. So, so far we've talked about how the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament, 
has this repeated promise that if the children of Israel are faithful and keep these laws and are are uh, are faithful to the covenant and only worship the Lord and keep, and observe the Sabbath and and keep the the laws that are outlined in in the Bible that that those are signs of covenant faithfulness and if they do that with their whole hearts then God will bless them and their children will be blessed and their fields will be blessed and every aspect of their life will be blessed and blessed richly they'll live in abundance and it's almost described as you know, returning to Eden if the law is kept. And yet the Bible is all is full of doubt about that. While that claim is made in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28, the clearest statements of it, though, while those statements are clearly made, it's a major theme in the book of Deuteronomy, especially um, the, there are other places in the Bible that register genuine doubt. And the first one that I'd like to talk about is the, in the book of Psalms, particularly in the Lament Psalms. So there are about five main genres of Psalms. And one of the largest of those genres, in fact, I think if you actually add up all the Psalms that fit these genres, this is the largest genre of the largest genre of Psalms are lament psalms. And lament psalms are basically saying something like, oh God, please help us or help me. Some are individual, oh God, please help me. And others are communal, oh God, please help us. And I want to focus on Psalm 44, which is a very powerful, very clear psalm where where we see doubt and discouragement and dismay. Does this plan really work? It doesn't seem like it's working for us. And so most of the laments end with a statement of praise or thanksgiving or trust, but this one does not. This one ends in sheer agony. And there are several others that are similar to this that we could talk about here, Psalm 88 and 89 particularly. But this one is the clearest one that lays out uh, uh, this doubt that we're discussing. So Psalm chapter 44, as I said, is one of those Psalms that begins on a happy note and then it takes a shift right at verse after verse eight, between verse eight and verse nine. So it starts out, uh, we have heard it, God, with our own ears. Our ancestors told us about it, about the deeds you did in their days, in days long past. You, by your hand, removed all the nations. You planted our ancestors, you crushed the peoples, but you set our ancestors free. No, not by their own swords did they take possession of the land. Their own arms didn't save them. No, it was your strong hand, your arm, and the light of your face because you were pleased with them. So he's saying, God, you were so wonderful to us. You brought us up out of Egypt and and we defeated Amalekites and Midianites and then all the people, the Canaanite groups that were in the the land. You, You brought us in. You crushed those people and gave this land to us. It's such a wonderful gift. And so it's celebrating that joyful gift. And so verse eight says, so we glory in God at all times and give thanks to your name forever. And then it says Selah. And we have a whole change of tone. But now you've rejected and humiliated us. You no longer accompany our armies. Remember, God promised that God would do that if they followed the law. You make us retreat from the enemies, from the enemy. Our adversaries plunder us. 
You've handed us over like sheep for butchering. You've scattered us among the nations. You've sold your people for nothing, not even bothering to set a decent price. And it goes on with similar language. And I'm going to jump to verse 17 because here we see a new theme. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you or broken your covenant. Our hearts haven't turned away. Neither have our steps strayed from your way, but you've crushed us in the place where jackals live, covering us with deepest darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to some strange deity, wouldn't God have discovered it? After all, God knows every secret of the heart, No, God, it's because of you that we are being killed every day. It's because of you that we're we're considered (coughs) sheep ready for slaughter. This couldn't be any clearer. He's saying, God, that covenant that we made that was supposed to bring us so, so much blessing, we haven't broken it. As far as I know, we're keeping the covenant. And if we were worshiping strange gods back in the back room somewhere, you would know it. And, and you would have been able to point that out. But we're spreading. We're not doing those things. We're faithful to this covenant. Our hearts have not turned away, verse 18 says. Neither have our steps strayed from your way. Yet you crushed us in the place where jackals live, covering us with deepest darkness. So he's clearly making the claim that we've kept our side of the agreement, but God you failed yours. That covenant that you made with Moses where you promised blessing to us, where is it? I don't see it. And it's very interesting that we encounter in verse 22 uh, a a passage that's actually quoted in Romans chapter 8 by the Apostle Paul. A very, very interesting biblical connection where this open-ended question, this raw wound that the early Christian, that the that the, um, the psalmist is expressing this raw wound, this I cannot figure this out. It doesn't seem like this covenant plan is working. Paul brings up in Romans chapter eight at a critical juncture in order to provide the answer that the New Testament provides for this very issue. And so, at the very end of this uh, chapter, again, this is Psalm forty-four. Stand up. Help us, save us for the sake of your faithful love. That's the way the psalm ends. And it. uh, so there's no statement of of confidence. There's no like, God, I know you're going to come through. I know that this couldn't be the end. I know that you wouldn't leave us hanging like this and and abuse us in such a horrible way. It seems like you're abusing us, but you're not really. And we don't get any of that. We get that kind of thing in some other lament psalms. But this one is just sheer agony. It ends in sheer agony. And that's what's so curious because in some other laments, the the psalmist is lamenting the fact that they sinned and they brought this tragedy upon themselves. And so you can understand God's God's response might be, hey, look, you sinned. I said if you sinned, there'd be uh, some hell to pay. You're, You're experiencing that now. So what do you expect? But in this case, the psalmist is making the case, at least, that you might say, well, he's wrong. But whatever, he's making the case that as far as he knows, they've not broken the covenant. They're still faithfully serving the Lord, but they are being 
crushed by their enemies and it doesn't look like God's covenantal plan is working. And so, uh, and so what we do have here, without a doubt, is a registered complaint. It's like he's bringing his case against God. And he's saying, God, look, um, you said it would be this way. You said we'd be blessed. We're not being blessed. You said if we're faithful, we'd be, uh, everything would go well. We're being faithful and everything is going terribly. What's wrong with this plan? Here we have genuine doubt a registered that the plan mentioned previously is not working. And this is the doubt that really begins to just unfold into larger and larger waves of doubt. And so we have a complete shift in opinion, especially visible as we get into the New Testament. The book of Habakkuk is really one of the more interesting books in the Hebrew scriptures, and it's a minor prophet um, in the 12 prophets collection, and it deals with this specific question, why the righteous suffer, and the prophet in the book of Habakkuk is bringing a complaint to God. It's, it's based on a pattern that where the prophet will bring a complaint to God about this issue. God will provide a response that raises another question. He'll bring that question. God will provide a response. Then there's a psalm of praise and thanksgiving in chapter uh, 3, and then a statement of resignation at the end. And so let's start right at the very beginning where he registers the first complaint. And so this will be chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Lord, how long will I call for help and you will not, and you not listen? I cry to you violence, but you don't deliver us. Why do you show me injustice and look at anguish so that devastation and violence are before me? There's strife and conflict abounds. The instruction is ineffective. Justice does not endure because wicked surround the righteous. Justice becomes warped. What's particularly interesting about this is the claim that the instruction is ineffective. The word he uses there is Torah. Torah is ineffective. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. If you go back to the Torah, the books of, of Moses, the law, if you read back there, it says that God will bless us if we if bless the righteous and prosper the righteous, but it doesn't seem to be working. The righteous seem to be surrounded by the wicked. It doesn't seem to be wicked, working, and the wicked are the ones that are prospering here in Jerusalem. And God provides a response to that. He's saying, why is that? And the Lord responds, and the Lord basically says that judgment is coming soon. The Babylonians will bring God's judgment upon them. And I'll just read a few verses here, verses 5 through 7. Look among the nations and watch, the Lord says. Be astonished and stare because something is happening in your days that you wouldn't believe if I told you. I'm about to rouse the Chaldeans, that bitter and impetuous nation which travels throughout the earth to possess dwelling places it does not own. The Chaldean is dreadful and fearful. He makes his own justice and dignity. So I'm bringing justice. I'm bringing judgment upon these wicked by sending in, rousing, it says, the Chaldeans, which are Babylonians, that, are, that bitter and impetuous nation that travels throughout the earth to possess dwelling places it does not own. It's like, this is wrong. The way they behave is wrong. They, be, they possess dwelling places they do not own. They just grab, it'd be like running into your neighbor's house and chasing them out with a, with a shotgun and possessing it. 
So they do these horrible and wicked things and they make, it says he makes his own justice and dignity. It's like they're so powerful and so strong. They can just be the, they, they are the word of, nobody can do anything. If they say something's just, I can take over my neighbor's house with a shotgun. Who's going to do anything about it? It's that kind of arrogance that it's describing here. But it's, these are the people that God is sending to bring judgment upon the wicked of Jerusalem. And the prophet has a problem with that. So we have the first complaint, response, and then the prophet's second complaint. Uh, And I'm just going to read part of this in verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. This is the prophet speaking. You are unable to look at disaster. Why would you look at the treacherous or keep silent when the wicked swallows the one who is even more righteous? So he's saying here, how could even the wicked in our city of Jerusalem aren't as bad as as those Babylonians? Lord, have you even looked at them? How can you use them to judge us when they're even more wicked? And the prophet, that's the basic nuts and bolts of the problem that he raises. And the Lord's response is that there's even more judgment planned for the Babylonians. And here in chapter, kind of an interesting thing, it says, the Lord answered to me. It it describes the prophet kind of setting his station in Jerusalem and saying, okay, I'm going to wait here until God provides a response. God, you provide. This is my complaint. I don't understand this. How can this be working out this way? The law doesn't seem to be working. It's not efficacious. And you're doing these things that don't make any sense at all. And it says here, uh, the Lord responds, write a vision. So this is the Lord telling Habakkuk, write a vision and make it plain on a tablet so a runner can read it. So he's saying, make this response really big. This is an important response to your question. I want it to be really, really big so that even a runner can see it, which means, you know, the lettering has to be big. You can't read small print when you're running by something. And so he begins to express judgment, powerful uh, passage of judgment on the Babylonians. And this is structured along the, um, the repetition of the word doom. It says doom, 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 all over, over and over. And each doom tells you a specific thing that God is going to bring doom upon the Babylonians for. So the basic answer here is those Babylonians, I want this written large, those Babylonians are going to experience even more destruction. There's more doom in line for them because of their wickedness. And each doom talks about different kinds of wickedness. There's a different type of wickedness associated. And I'm just going to look at the first and the last one. The first doom says they will say doom to the the one who multiplies what doesn't belong to him and who increases his own burden. So he's like, these people just are marching throughout the earth. They've got such a powerful army led by Nebuchadnezzar and Nabonidus and other uh, Babylonian leaders. And they're marching throughout the country, just taking the land and taking away the people's property. And there's, and I've, I'm going to doom them. I'm going to judge them for that. And then the last one is uh, chapter 2, verse 18 and t- through 20. This is a little confusing when you read it. And let me just describe it a little bit before I actually read the text. What he's describing, th- this doom is doom upon their idolatry. And when he, dis- when he brings, uh, describes the doom upon their idolatry, he uses this language that depicts the way people would actually, actually create idols. 
when they create idols in the ancient world, they knew it was wood and stone, but, they, but they'd put clothing on them and dress them and feed them. And then they would shout at them to get them to wake up because they know that they're not awake. They're stone, they're wood. And so these people aren't stupid. They know that, but they have these ceremonies that would that were meant to kind of bring these inanimate things to life so that they actually begin to represent the deity. And he uses, he's kind of mocking, Habakkuk is mocking that language here when he says this. So again, this is from the Lord to Habakkuk, but Habakkuk is the prophet here and he's expressing. He says, of what value is an idol when a potter carves it or a cast image that has been shaped it is a teacher of lies, for the potter trusts the pottery, though it is incapable of speaking. Doom to the one who says to the tree, wake up or get up to the silent stone. Does it teach? Look, it is overlaid with gold and silver, but there's no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So he's saying doom to these idolaters who are creating these idols, saying wake up, wake up to to bring these inanimate objects into this zone where they can be worshiped as gods. He's saying, that's dumb. There's no, there's no, they, they can't teach. These things can't teach. They're overlaid with gold, but there's no breath in them. Even after you say, wake up, they still aren't breathing, but the Lord is in his holy temple. By contrast, we have a real God who really does live and let all the earth be silent. You don't need to come into his presence and shout, wake up, wake up, God. God's awake. He knows what's going on and there's no uh, need to do that. And then we enter Psalm chapter, uh, uh, Habakkuk chapter three, which is a Psalm. And it's a Psalm. You notice it has a, uh, it says, according to Shigianot, which is a, st- a kind of the style of, um, of music that's supposed to be used. And notice it uses the word sila. This is a Psalm that's tucked into the, book of, uh, into the book of Habakkuk, which is a prophet. So Psalms and prophets are sometimes the same thing. And so it describes God coming and God being victorious over the enemies and all of that. And so he's, it's a, you know, a real powerful vision of God's bringing doom upon these Babylonians. But at the very end, we kind of find um, Hab- Habakkuk's kind of in the same place. He's still... Well, listen to what he says. At the very end, he talks about uh, how he's quivering, rottenness enters his bones. He trembles. Uh, he says, I tremble as I stand while I wait for the day of distress to come upon the people who attack us. So nothing's happened yet. He's still waiting for this uh, distress to come upon these Babylonians. And here's what he says, which is so interesting and really gives us uh, information and how this, uh, how he's processing this what seems to be an ineffective covenant. Though the fig tree doesn't blossom and there's no produce on the vine, though the olive tree withers and the field doesn't provide food, though the sheep are cut off from the pen and there is no cattle in the stalls, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my deliverance. The Lord is the Lord God is my strength. He will set my feet like the deer. He will give me, he will let me walk upon the heights. Now look at everything that he says here. The fig tree doesn't blossom. There's no produce on the vine. The olive tree crop withers. The fields don't give fruit. The sheep 
cut off in the pen. There's no cattle in the stalls. That all has been, are, those all are things that God had promised. If you're faithful to this covenant, if you're faithful to me, if you're faithful, you will receive those things. And here the prophet's like saying, even at the end of the day, when all of this, you know, all of my conversation with God and my questions with God uh, are over and I'm here, this prophet that's trying to get people to walk in the righteous pathway. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm suffering too. I don't experience these blessings because my fig tree isn't blossoming and my vine is withering. And things are not going well here in Israel. There's this great tragedy um, that's occurring, but I'm going to trust in God anyway. I don't understand it. It seems like the covenant, the Torah, the book owns up, begins with the Torah being ineffective. It seems like the Torah is ineffective. It's, it promises these blessings, but I've got to be faithful anyway. I've got to, I've got to power through this. I've got to be trust, trusting in God, even though it doesn't look like it's quite what it was. You know, it looks kind of like a, like a, like it was false advertising. You know, it looks like the, I, these things were promised to me for faithfulness, but I'm going to have to be faithful now, even though I'm not getting the blessing of faithfulness. It doesn't make sense to me. And so the book of Habakkuk is expressing real doubt and dismay and wonderment and puzzlement and discombobulation over the question of why it doesn't appear to him that the covenant is working. It appears the covenant is ineffective and, and not efficacious, but he's going to be faithful to it anyway. And I think there are times in our, our lives where all of us feel that way. But the point here is he's raising it. We're, we're seeing doubt being expressed about other passages of scripture. So by now, you can see that this is quite a conversation that's going on in the Bible. There are very long and extensive, and in fact, you could say the primary perspective of the Hebrew Scriptures is that there's a direct connection between being godly and experiencing the good life, or being evil and ignoring God's laws and, and worshiping idolatrous uh, beings and experiencing curse and, and, um, and disease. And so, in fact, the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures, both both sets of histories in the Bible, uh, Joshua through two kings and the Chronicles, the both books of the Chronicles have different versions of how it works. One believes that one is interpreted so that there's uh, curses that can go from one generation to another. And Chronicles seems to think that the curse has to be experienced by the person who does the sin itself, the Ezekiel way of understanding it. But in any case, uh, the, the primary perspective of the Hebrew scriptures is that there is a direct connection between being godly and experiencing the good life. And then there's pe there are people out there, as we saw Psalm 44 and Habakkuk, people out there, we haven't even gotten to Job yet, people out there that are saying, this doesn't work. It seems like it should work, but it doesn't work as well as you would think. And so, you know, in, in Methodist circles, we talk about scripture, tradition, reason, and experience as being the basis of all good theology. In this case, it's scripture and tradition, you know, what you know, the Torah says, colliding with reason and experience. The people experiencing, you know, someone trying to worship the Lord as best as they can, and yet things just don't go right for them. And then other people being ignoring God's laws and ways, and everything seems to go well for them. And so you have this colliding of opinions. And so um, 
And so the, the scriptures are, are, um, have this kind of internal tension. I have enough material, I think, where I will have material for three more episodes just going over the biblical material. And then I have uh, two, two interviews after that. So I do want to encourage you to, uh, to rate and review. Nobody has done it yet. Believe it or not, I'm still looking for my first person to go on, besides me, uh, my, the first person to go on Apple uh, Podcasts and do a rate and review. That would be a real honor to me, and I'd be very appreciative. Also, um, to share it with friends, post it to your social media feed, I'd be very honored and appreciative if you would uh, kindly do that. Remember, always the Word of God is for and with the people of God. And so we say together, thanks be to God.